How's everybody doing? Yeah. All right. Memorial weekend. Everybody got big plans? Going to stay right here at the beach, right? Hang out. You got a parking space? You're just going to keep it. I gotcha. It's awesome. Well, man, I tell you what, I have really loved being in the, the Come and Listen series um, and being in Nehemiah. Uh, it's, you know, it's one of those books. Uh, years ago, somebody gave me a, a book called Hand Me Another Brick um, uh, by Chuck Swindoll. Anybody? Chuck Swindoll fans? Um, and it really was amazing. I really, it was a long time yeah, you know, before I was uh, at all a student of the Bible. And just amazing leadership principles about um, what it looks like to humbly and gracefully lead people to actually get something done. Uh, it's r- super powerful. But it's interesting as we get to this part of Nehemiah, there's a realization and an eye-opening kind of thing that's happening as the wall has been built. The people are back in Jerusalem after many, many years of being in exile. And if you've not been with us in the Come and Listen series, um, we're, that's kind of where we've landed. We've been on this, this whole narrative arc of Scripture um, looking at these stories of God's faithfulness, and again, God has been faithful and brought them back to Jerusalem, but they're still uh, in kind of a, a strange position. But this is that moment where they realize, man, they have missed worshiping God the way that they had worshiped God in the past, years and years, the way that their ancestors did. Um, so this has been a time, one, of celebrating, but also of weeping, and this chapter is about repentance and remembrance um, and as I was reading it, as you get towards the end, I, I saw something that all of a sudden started to make me think about what we often do as Christians when we experience God or when we have something going on. Dave was talking about, you know, going, you know, when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, there's often a way that we approach God. There's a, there's a hope that we have. Uh, sometimes there's not a hope. We're frustrated with God. Um, but I grew up in a Christian school. Um, went to that school for 15 years, and I missed the gospel for a lot of it. I did learn a lot about the Bible. Um, some amazing people taught me, but for whatever reason, God had not pulled the shroud off of my eyes to understand the gospel fully. Um, and maybe this might be your story if you grew up in the Southeast, but um, have you ever made a, like, a, like a contract with God or a, like a promise not to do something again? Um, like, I'm not going to do this, or you're wanting something from like you're, you're like in, in the moment and maybe even subconsciously you think it's kind of dumb like I'm not going to do this but if, if you know if, if I do these things then maybe God will give me X you know it's called the prosperity gospel but I think all of us have a, a story of doing it at least I do um, when I was a senior in high school it's kind of funny um, we, we weren't expected to, to really win a ton of football games we were uh, two and nine the pre- prior season uh, and that team had lots of good athletes that got Division I scholarships, and we lost most of our games. So all those guys graduated. We were kind of expected. We were like the bad news bears. But for whatever reason, I think because we played as a team, I think I talked about that one, at one point, had an amazing coach that kind of brought us together. But anyway, we started winning some football games. And one, one of my friends noticed that we, you know, we hadn't really kind of just gotten involved in any shenanigans, as I'll put it. I'm so old, using the term shenanigans. Um, we, hadn't, we, we, we hadn't gone, like, done anything, like, as, and I, this would be surprising to you, I hadn't gone to really any parties where there was alcohol. I know, you're like, gosh, the pastor, when he was in high school, went to parties where there was alcohol. Yes, I did. That's a problem. That's going to be a problem. Um, but I, we hadn't done any of that. We hadn't done any of the shenanigans. So my buddy's like, maybe that's why God's letting us win. And so we made this, <laughs> this is so stupid. We made this pact with one another, like, okay, 
dude, we're not, partying's over, dude. God's letting us win. We, we're on a streak, you know. We're not going to, there's no partying happening. Uh, so we, we committed to it. And we got all the way into our, our, our uh, the second to the last game. Um, and so we're, we're 9-0. and We just won. It's Friday night. And lots is going on. It's like, the, I think, I don't remember exactly what was going on. We had, we had one more game coming the next week. And lots of people were going out and doing stuff. It was Friday night. You know, you just won the football game. And people were like, so-and-so's parents are out of town. We're going to, you know, we're going to go over there. Of course, there's you know, going to be some, you know, adult beverages. And we're not adults, but we're going to go anyway. And me and my buddy are like, and we kind of look at each other like, you know, we're just winning. I mean, that's what we're doing. We're just kind of winning because we're winners. That's what we do. And so we, we, uh, we went to the party. Um, and then fast forward to the next Friday night, okay? We're playing the Trenton Tigers. I'll never forget this. So this just hurts. We're playing the Trenton Tigers, and we, we, it was a very tight game. Uh, back and forth, back and forth. And me and my buddy are pretty nervous about it. Um, and we're not telling the rest of the team that it's probably going to be our fault if we lose um, because we went to the adult beverage party. Um, so we're, we're playing this game. We get to the fourth quarter. R- literally, this is like, the, you know, like not as good as Remember the Titans, but kind of there. We were going to win, and it, we were right there. A couple yards, my friend John Porter was going to get the football and run it in for a touchdown. It was all going to be good. And two yards, we could have got, we had two of the better running backs in the state. We could have gotten two yards in our sleep that short, and we lost. And immediately, I mean, it was the worst. It was home game, Trenton Tigers that had district, you know, title implications. My buddy immediately, like, he's, he's center. I wasn't usually out on the field for offense, so I played defense. But the, the coach had seniors out there for some extra blocking, some other stuff. So I was out on the field. And my buddy's the center, and he comes, literally comes off of his block, has the plays over, and we don't get it. And he literally looks at me and goes, <laughs> like to say, it's our fault. We just lost it all for the team. We had made a pact, and God is punishing us. Um, and I don't know, you know, you know, what's interesting is the Trenton Tigers, they won, lost their last game, so we made it to districts anyway. So heck with those contracts with God, right? <laughs> we went, and we won, and we won districts. But I want to, I, like, when I look at this passage, what's interesting is they do this whole recap. They come before God at the very beginning of Nehemiah chapter 9, and they bring the priests, the Levites, um, all the people that, the, the worship leaders and the ones that are going to be reading the law, and they basically go through, they do a summary reading like the Come and Listen series. Um, who was here when we did the, the recap as we started this, the Come and Listen series at the beginning? Like, I walked through the whole thing. If you go back and read, I'm not going to read all of it today, but go back and read it. It is like the Come and Listen series. It starts in Genesis with Abraham at Covenant, goes through Egypt, does the whole thing, gets into Judges and the cycle of repentance, messing up again, God extending mercy, God releasing them to their enemies. It goes through the whole thing. And they're kind of walking through the whole thing. And at the end... Nehemiah starts to talk about the, the, that they're going to make a pact. They're going to make a contract of all the things that they're going to do for God and the things that they're not going to do to walk away from God because we just listened to how many times we were not faithful and how many times God was faithful. So we're going to come together and make this agreement. We're going to make this contract. So in verse 35 it says, and he's kind of capping the end of this little come and listen rant, like to listen to the, the history of the children of God, he says, even while they were in their kingdom, and he's, this is talking about the, uh, I, I said judges in the first 
series, but it's really talking about the kingdom period. Um, even when they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness. It's the cycle of kings. They wanted a king. They had a king. Samuel said, hey, you, got the, you have a king. You've got God, who is the king of kings. They said, no, we want an earthly king like everybody else has got. So they were enjoying their kingdom with their king to them in their spacious and fertile land that you gave them, and they did not serve you. This is the cycle of all those 40 bad kings. Or turn from their evil way. So they kept doing all this bad stuff over and over again. And that's what landed them where they were in exile. First the Assyrian exile, and then finally the Babylonian exile, which has now turned into the Persian exile. So they're now back from that. But the reality is, and this is what he's saying here, is even though they're back in, in Jerusalem, even though the temple is now rebuilt, not as good as it was before, and there's walls around it, they are not their own entity. They are not their own king. He says, but see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things that it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. So all the good things that they get, they are now in prison to. Like they, because of their sin, they're now enslaved to the kings that they had committed to, which wasn't the king of kings, but the kings they were surrounded. So in other words, they, they said, we... We want this instead of to follow God. We want this pagan lifestyle. We think this is the better thing to have. We think these are the things that we should grab a hold of. And now that very thing that they thought was so good and pleasurable now owns them. Now owns them. So the harvest, all of what they have, goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies, our cattle, as they please. And we are in great distress. He's saying, look. We gave ourselves over to these, this, that these people, our ancestors did, and now they own us. And how sin is, like we think it's the, the, the thing that's going to be the most awesome thing. Like that's the person that I want, or that's the thing that I want. I mean, you ask people that are in recovery. I mean, there's the, it draws you in, that lifestyle of partying, that lifestyle of drugs, that lifestyle of anything. It draws you in, and then all of a sudden it owns you. And all of a sudden, it's the thing that you cannot get away from. It's the thing that you can't quit, um, but takes everything from you. Ask somebody that has, a, has had a massive drug addiction. Um, hello? Are they calling right now? Do they need help? Sorry. So that's where they were. They were in this place of responding and saying, gosh, the, the thing that we committed to and we thought was the better thing certainly wasn't. And they're admitting that God knows better. God is the, the better thing. So how do we stay committed to him? So in verse 38, it says, In view of all this, we're making a binding agreement. Some of your translations do actually say contract. Putting it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And you're going to see that in the, um, if, you're, if you guys like to read ahead, if you look at 10, you're going to go, gosh, there is a lot of names. Well, these are the people that are signing this agreement. So they literally had everybody signing this agreement and, here's the, and then they begin to put these things in place. Here's, the th here's how we're going to operate. Including all the Levitical law, here's all the things, here's the ways that we're going to operate while we're now back in the city, while we're back in Jerusalem, while we're back together. Here's all the promises and contracts that we're making with God. And I just thought it was funny because I've made those, obviously I've <laughs> made those contracts. Trenton Tigers, right? And I think we, we, we all, we've, we've done that in our in our time, I was just talking to somebody that, that, like, in those moments when things are horrible, 
I mean, like when you feel like, okay, I have now, I went down that road and now, I mean, just simply a hangover. Let's just get into that, that world, you know? <laughs> Sorry if you're a student and you're here just going to speak some truth to the students. You know, drinking a whole lot is not all it's cracked up to be. I mean, you can, God would say, go try it. I'm not telling you to try it. I'm looking straight at my son right now going, don't you do it. Um, but I was talking to somebody. It's like I, I, I've been in that, that place where you, you at four or five in the morning, you realize this was a horrible mistake. And all of a sudden you begin to speak to God. You say, God, if you take this headache away, I will never, ever, ever drink again. And I will be a missionary in Africa. I mean, you say unbelievable things. You make these contracts and they don't last. I mean, they're not, they don't, and, and we, we do it. I mean, it's, it's one of those, we walk the aisle at youth camp. Like we realize like there's a long, there's a whole year of just ridiculousness that happens until you get to passion camp, right guys? And all of a sudden, the same kid that raised his hand last year, he's had a rough year. He's like, man, I, I know I got saved last year, but they're asking me to give my life to Jesus. And I certainly did not give it last, last year because of what I just look at the other 11 and a half months. They weren't really Jesus-like. So here goes the hand up again. Here's me crying again. Here's me walking the aisle again and rededicating my dedication of my rededication of dedicating my life, rededicating it to Jesus one more time. And we go down and we make these promises to God. We, 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 we put ourselves in these places of having a con. We see our failure. We wear that and then we, we try to figure out how is it I'm going to get in the good ground. I don't want to end up here. I don't want to end up here again. So I'll make a contract with God. I'll make a promise to God to get out of it and do it better next time. Right? That's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to, and what's interesting is the cycle that you see with the, the children of God is the same cycle that we probably have experienced in our lives is they, it's over and over again. They make a promise. They say, we're going to do it. God extends, well, he extends mercy when he shouldn't, but he does because he's God and he's compassionate. <laughs> and then they, they're like, oh, we, we, we're, we're back in the good. And then all of a sudden it just goes, goes back down that road again. So I want to ask this question. Is it good to make a contract with God? Now, I'm making it sound terrible. Like the, and these guys are making an agreement. And when I ask that question, is it good to make a contract with God? There's a, there is a yes and a no in here. Now, I think maybe the wording I'm trying to create a little tension. So um, it might feel a little bit like, of course, you don't make a contract with God or an agreement or a promise with God. It will never go well. But the question I think that that, that makes me want to ask is, well, if, I, if I'm not agreeing to obey God, if, if, I'm, if I'm not, a, like, I, is there a moment in which I, I, in my relationship with God, that I say, my heart is to obey. Like, I, I, wa I want to do these things. I, God, God honors obedience, or God does bless obedience. Psalm 512 says, surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. Like, there's something about the way that, the economy of God works, and I know my gospel police in here are going to jump on me, but I, I have a whole sermon to preach, so don't jump on me yet. But it's in the Bible right here. Look, that he, he blesses the righteous. Like there's something to obedience, right? There's something where God, that, that is his desire for us. Now, why God wants that, we'll, we'll get a little more clear. In Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2, he says, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commands, which I command you today, the Lord, your God, will set you high above all the nations on earth. He's telling the children of God and the people of God, if you obey me, you're going to end up in a good position, in a good place. 
And that wasn't not true. This is God. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Isaiah 48, 18. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea. That's Isaiah. So Isaiah was one of those prophets that they were like, often had, was, you know, threatened because nothing ever went. The dude preached for 40 years, tried to tell the people they needed to come back and quit doing the things that they were doing, that God was leading them this way and they were going that way and nobody ever listened. And that was him saying, hey guys, if you'd have done what I kept telling you to do, things would have, you would have had peace like a river. You'd have had well-being like the waves of the sea, but you didn't do that. Right here in Nehemiah 25b through 27, it says they ate to the full and were well nourished. So rebelling against God never goes well. They reveled in your great goodness, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. So things went well when they were moving towards God and obeying God and things didn't go well when they disobeyed God and the commands of God were broken. So it almost feels like and appears like there's this non-gospel reciprocity law. I mean, I think sometimes if we read the Bible just in isolation, that we might walk away. If I just, we just ended the sermon and I just said, hey, you need to obey. If you, if you can just obey God, then things will go well for you. Like, all right, let's go to lunch. Memorial Day. Be careful. Don't drink too much. I mean, if that's the way that we did this, then, I mean, it would be simple. And we could preach that every week. You know, do the right thing and things will go well for you. Well, here's, here's one reality. That is kind of true. If you, if you obey the laws, things go good for you. I mean, there, there's a law that you shouldn't go into the convenience store with a gun and stick up the dude. You might go down in a hail of bullets, right? You might die today if you do that. So don't do that and you'll live, right? There's things about the law that are good. Obeying is not necessarily a bad thing. But here's, here's the difference. When we, when, we look at, when we look at this passage, we look at any passage about obedience. You look at Colossians chapter 3, for instance. In Colossians chapter 3, it is a bomb of the Apostle Paul telling the church at Colossae to stop it. Like they're doing stuff that's not right. Sexual immorality. They're, they're you know, treating each other with a mouse. They're stabbing each other in the back. They're inside the church. They're not treating each other very nice. The Corinthian church, he does the same thing. First five chapters, he's just yelling at them. They're young, you know, prideful, but also full of the spirit. God's doing a bunch of things, but he has to, people tell the apostle Paul, hey, there's some pretty weird stuff going on and people are sinning against each other in a horrible way. And he, for five chapters, he's yelling at them, stop it. Stop doing this. Well, how can, how is it, why don't you obey? But the Apostle Paul was always good at saying what? Since you've been raised with Christ, he says in Colossians chapter 3. He's saying, I want, he's not telling them to just obey to earn God's favor. You obey, you're going to earn God's favor. He'll give you good things. No, the Apostle Paul says, since you've been raised with Christ, because you're a follower of Jesus, because you have given your life to Jesus. That's the, the, the powerful thing. Once you surrender to Jesus, not do something good for him, surrender to Jesus, your sins past, present, and future removed out of the eyesight of God. He sees you as righteous, just as 
Austin was saying, the great exchange, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he who knew no sin became sin on your behalf so that you might what? Become righteous. You might appear obedient before God. Pretty powerful. But the Apostle Paul is saying what? Since you've been raised with Christ, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, and now you're alive with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your eyesight, set your mind, set your heart on things above. And then he says, this is who you can be. Because you're now in Christ, what's possible for you is that you could actually choose life instead of death. You could actually walk away from the bondage that would be this lifestyle and walk into this lifestyle. And he leads them in that direction. So where do contracts for us go wrong? Like what, like when I, you even use the term contract, the problem with contracts is contracts are rooted in what we want. Contracts are rooted in what we want. Does that make sense? It's like I'm making a contract. What did I want in my contract with the Trenton Tigers? We wanted a win, 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 baby. That's what we wanted. And so we were making a contract with God. God, I'll do this in hopes that you will do this. And that's, that's, that's right there where the contract breaks down. Because that's never, that was never God's intention when he, had, when he comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my children. That was not, but that's what we, we begin to turn it into. An agreement that if we do this, then we're going to get the, the land that is plenty. That, that, that was their whole idea. Their mindset was, oh, we obey God and we'll end up in the promised land. But God's whole intention was that they will be a people set apart for him, that they would be a people that were, would be his. That there was, a, there, was a relation, there was relationship implications. You see, contracts are set up in a way that here's my agreement. I agree to do these things. If I don't do these things, the contract is broken. And so we're making a contract with God, like, God, I want you to do these things. And if you don't do these things, I can get frustrated and go do my own thing. I, I've done that, like thought, this is what, what's going on in my life. And heck with following God. Just been frustrated. Just been frustrated. I remember years ago, I had just got had done some amazing things in my life, and then all of a sudden, something pretty significantly horrible happened to me, and I just thought, are you kidding me? And it was, it was almost like I just said, I put the pause button on everything that, that I thought I was planning on doing for God, because I'm like, why would I do all those things? And I became super self-focused for the next three and a half years, because I was frustrated. Because God, had, the contract wasn't working out. Like, God, I, I, I surrendered. I gave my life to you, and this is what I get? This is what happens to me? And we, we look at contracts that way. It's like, I do this. I mean, right now, we're getting ready to re-sign like a short-term lease on, this, on our space here. It's like, I have to agree to all these things. We will pay this ridiculously large amount of money that I can't stand paying. Um, and we get this wonderful space, space with no parking. Um, that's the contract we're making. And it's like, you understand the whole idea of a contract. It's, 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 when we think about marriage, often marriage is thought of, this is one of the problems with marriage. It's thought of as a contract. And it's, here's the, here's the things that I promise to do. We all make, we, we make these vows, you know, for richer, for poorer, you know, we've in sickness. 
and in health, and that's contractual. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be these things. I'm, this is that you're going to look the way you look, and you're going to, if you don't, then I'm out. Or, you know, if you all of a sudden go crazy, and I'm just, I'm out. I mean, there's, I mean, we, that's what happens in marriage. I thought they were this person, and they started acting like this. I thought they were this person, and they started dealing with clinical depression. Something happened in our life. It's happened with our kids. We couldn't take the pressure, and I'm out. I mean, that's one of the reasons the divorce rate is what it is. Because it's the thought process is, I, 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 we sat, we, we signed a contract. But if somebody asks you why you're married to your spouse, what are, what are they going to do? Are, are, you, you know, are you going to pull out the piece of paper? Well, I signed this. That's super romantic. You know, some of you guys are like, yeah, I've got it right here. That's why I'm no, what do you do? It's, you begin to tell the story, right? Tell the story of how you met, what drew the two of you together, how that relationship works, right? Like what, what, what's, what's beautiful about them, you know, how much you love her, you know, what's, what's how you would die for her. Like if anybody ever, you know, came against her, you would fight for her and vice versa. The things that you would sacrifice, I mean, it's, it's interesting in the, in, the, in the promises, because in a contract, you, you, you read those promises, you know, for richer, for poor, and sickness, and in health. And in year one, we try our best to do those things, you know, it's in sickness and in health. You know, in, the, in year one, when somebody gets sick, it's like, you know, you're like, baby, I, I love you. I'm going to Walgreens. I'm going to get you all the stuff. I'm, I got to, what, what do you need? You need some drops? You need the, the, the lozenge? You know, you got the thing? And you sleep next to them and put wet cloths to cool their head. You know, we're in year 28, and it's like, baby, I heard you got a tickle. I'm going to sleep in the next room. <laughs> it changes, you know. But see, but see, a covenant, a covenant is what we're talking about. Like, God didn't make a contract with his people. He made a covenant. And a covenant, a contract goes, I'll do this and you do this. We all, we, we kind of go halfway in. You're 50 and I'm 50. Like, I'll, I'll bring 50 in, you bring 50 in, we'll, together we'll make 100. A covenant is 100-100, which means I'm going 100% whether you bring your 100% or not. No matter what you do, I'm not going anywhere. I will love you no matter what. It's called unconditional love. My love is based on the love of Christ, right? That's the covenant that you're making. It's a covenant that no, even if you fail on your side, I'm coming in. If you go into a deep, depressive state and you tell me that you don't love me and that you don't want to be married to me I am not going to stop pursuing you and stop loving you that is a covenant so that's a different thing when when we when we look at this whole thing it's not a contract that we that we enter into with God it is a relationship since you have been raised with Christ since you're now a son or a daughter then that gives you the capacity instead of obeying to get something you're obeying because you have something you have a relationship with your heavenly father. How do we know what we have? Well, they just read it in this passage. It's interesting. You find out what you have, that the God that is on your side, that he is number one, he is sufficient. It says, blessed, this is a, they, they start out with worship, which is what we do, and I love it. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it, may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all the starry hosts. 
the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that's in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. This was their corrective action right here to say that God is sufficient. The God that you are in covenant with, the God that loves you, the God that will never, never leave you is sufficient. They were surrounded by a polytheistic pagan territory where they had been for years, even their ancestors had worshiped many gods. They had, they had just cleaned house and said, we are worshiping what you alone are God. Everything that we see up in the sky, everything that we see on planet earth, you created and made them. You are sufficient in all things. You can do all things. And then they move on. And the second thing is that God was steadfast, that he was faithful. All these things you find in this passage, he does not abandon. He never leaves or forsakes you. Look at some of these statements I just pulled out of Nehemiah chapter 9. In their hunger, talking about them coming out of Egypt, you gave them bread from heaven. In their thirst, you gave them water from a rock. That's God's faithfulness. Look at our unfaithfulness. But they didn't obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles performed among them. In their rebellion, they appointed a leader in order to return to slavery. They didn't even want it. They're like, we got out of slavery. Ah, we don't really like it. We'll go back to slavery. Sometimes we, we don't even know that we want to go back to slavery. Like we, we would prefer to be in a place that's not as good for us. But God, listen to this. You are, forg- you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. You did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image, an idol, a calf, you did not abandon them. You did not fail to guide them on their path. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You see, God made a covenant with his people, not a contract. He made a covenant. God was always going to go 100 He was never going to abandon. He was never going to forsake. He was always going to love. He was the father, and we as the people of God were the children. In verse 7, it says this. It says, you, the Lord God, chose Abram, listen to this, and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. Going all the way back. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to his descendants of the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. I love it that in Nehemiah chapter nine, they go all the way back to remember that God is a covenant-keeping God, that he always does what he says he's gonna do. It's interesting, if you look and see that Abrahamic covenant, when it was finally solidified, it's in Genesis chapter 15, I think right around 17, 18, 19, You should look it up. It is one of the weirdest passages in the Bible. It is absolutely strange. And you'll dig it. I mean, if you love looking at the Bible, you're like, what is this all about? I'm fitting to tell you. It's pretty crazy. So God's making a covenant with Abraham. And he's told him, your your, your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. I'm going to be your God. See, this ownership's different than a contract. And you're going to be my people. You're going to be my children. And so God says, okay, I need you to go get a heifer, a calf. I need you to go get a goat. He just gets lots of animals. I'll just, I'll just go. He gets tons of animals. I don't want to make it super gross. So a few of pigeons, dove, different kinds of birds, and you're going to cut them all in half. Now, they were all alive to begin with, and now they're dead. And I want you to spread them out, and you're going to separate the halves. And you're going to make a, a, a bloody pathway. I know, I told you, it's weird. 
I want you to make this, this bloody pathway in between all of these animals. Now, I know that sounds weird, but in their day, this wouldn't have been an abnormal. Like, God wasn't asking Abraham to do something strange. In their day, this was the way that they did covenantal contractual relationships with people. Like, when it came to land, when it came to, uh, you know, you're going to, I'm going to betroth my daughter or anything like that contractually, this is the way that they did it if they were serious about it. You could give your word and that was one level of seriousness, like, hey, we're going to shake hands and this is the way it's going to be. But if we're really making a contract and a covenant in a big way, then we're going to do it this way. We're going to make the bloody pathway type, type covenant. So the, the idea was that if two people were making a covenant, that they would meet in the middle of, they would cut all the pieces up and we're going to meet in the middle of this bloody pathway. And this is different than spitting in the hand, right? It's a whole different ball game. Imagine if we still did that today. So you got this bloody pathway and they would meet in the middle. They would meet in the middle. And God did something different. And the, the whole idea here was if you don't keep your end of the bargain, it's going to get bloody. And that was the whole idea. If you don't keep your end of this covenant, if you don't keep your end of this contract, then this blood will be literally on your head. So it was like a serious thing to say, we're doing this, and if it doesn't happen, someone's going to die. Like, if you don't keep up your end of the bargain, you're telling me you're willing to give up your life because you broke the contract. That was what was common in their day for these type of covenantals. So God said, okay, we're going to do it y'all's way. Cut up the animals. We're going to make this bloody pathway. Now, this is the coolest and weirdest thing. God puts Abraham to sleep after he does it. He says, all right, go night-night. Puts him into like this trancey type of weird sleep and puts him outside of the pathway. You're not anywhere in it. Go to sleep. And then God comes down in the, in the presence, in, in, the, in the form of a smoking pot, which is so weird. It's called a theophany. When God comes down in the form of something else, sometimes he comes down in the form of this or form of that. He comes down in the form of a smoking pot. And God, the smoking pot passes through the bloody pathway. And after it's all done, Abraham is woken up, but he's aware of what had happened. Now, theologians, people have always, like there's been a lot of discussion about this, but people, they all land in this same crazy, amazing place on what, what this all means. Well, one was that God knew and understood that Abraham nor the people of God could ever keep up their end of the bargain. So he's like, look, you're going to have to get out of the bloody pathway. But God himself said, I'm going I'm to keep both ends of this covenant. I know I'm going to be faithful. I know I'm never going to abandon you. I, I know that I'm never going to forsake you. I know that I will always be faithful. I will always do the things that I am telling you. I will always love you. I will always chase you down. I will always extend mercy over and over and over again, but I know that you won't be faithful. I know that you will break this covenant. So guess what? I'm going to keep your end of the covenant too. And because you break your end of the covenant, the only way is blood is going to have to be shed and somebody's going to have to die. So I'm going to keep my end of the covenant and I'm going to keep your end of the covenant too by sending my son who's going to die and he's going to shed his blood. Broken body. a whole different ballgame. One of the most powerful 
things you see in Scripture. And it changes the whole mindset of, of where obedience comes from. We don't obey, obey because, because we need to get something. We, we obey and we follow God because we have something, because we've received something. So amazing. Grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We can't earn it. It's Dallas Willard. It's not opposed to effort, but that effort is driven by the blood of Jesus. It's driven by the grace of Jesus, this vertical display of love that he keeps his covenant and he kept our covenant too. And therefore we can surrender fully to who he is. That we would tr trust and treasure the good king, not a good contract. He's worthy of your trust. But not only is he worthy of your trust, he's, he's worthy to be treasured. He's worthy to be treasured. You know, I was thinking about this idea that we don't even know what we have in our Heavenly Father and how Jesus has made a way for us to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's interesting, I, I spoke to a woman after our first gathering and she came up to me and she was talking to me about her son and saying how tragic it was that he didn't even know his own father and what a broken place that was for, for him and that she felt guilty uh, because of her past because he didn't have a father. Um, but that she was so, so glad that it was possible for him to have a heavenly father. And she said, can you pray for me that, that, that God would show him how beautiful, how wonderful it is to, to, to be with the only father that will never, ever, ever run out on you. And I thought of years ago, um, back when I actually did post on Instagram, um, I, I've got this picture of, of uh, my son, Abe. I usually say my son, Abraham, um, because I'm always like, people won't hear Abe. But he's like, why do you say that? Well, I just said both of them. My son, Abe, my son, Abraham. Um, when they're in this, this kind of sweet zone, you know, when they're in this age, there's, there's ages where you don't really like your kids. And then there's ages that you really like them. I'm kidding. I always love you, but sometimes don't like you. Um, but there's this sweet age, you know, that's, you know, they get to be about six, seven, eight, nine, ten, maybe eleven, depending on hormones. Um, where you really, there's this, it's just great. They, they love, they, they think you're awesome. Um, they think you're Superman, you know, as a dad. And, and they, they want to be with you no matter what. I could, I could tell Abe, it didn't matter what he had on tap, what his day was like, what he was doing. If I said, hey, man, you want to, me and you, just me and you want to go eat at Cruisers? And there's, that's 100% yes. He might still say it, sweet Abraham. Um, he would always say yes. Like nothing else, everything paled in comparison to being at the table at Cruisers, sitting outside the old Cruisers. Remember when it was stinky? You know, you had the dumpster over there and we didn't care. Like, Cruisers, awesome. It's great. Uh, there's a few laughs in here. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Um, new Cruisers is fine, too. They still have the ranch, which, you know, that's going to be in heaven, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but he, he would always choose that because he understood, man, this is, you know, cheesy fries, bacon, chives, all the stuff, you know, Cruisers burger, amazing sitting at the table with dad. He valued it. It was a value that was there. He treasured. 
there's a seat at the table. And what's, what's crazy is kids get older, they grow up, and then all of a sudden dad's no longer the superhero, he becomes an idiot, and life goes on. But we will always be the children of God. We never outgrow our status with the Heavenly Father. We never outgrow it. We are always the ones that, if we know what it's like to be at the table with our dad, it will be the best choice and it will be the only choice we'd want to make. The only problem is we don't see it, we don't understand it, something clouds our vision, and we th think something else is better than that. And when, when, when we use the term obedience, it, it's, it's so twisted. Because all, all God's really inviting us to when, 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 when that terminology is being used, he's saying, I want you at my table. That's obedience. He's just saying, I, I want you with me. I want you in this space with me. And I've made, I've literally sacrificed everything, my very own blood, that you might be at the table with me. And I'm telling you, at my table, it's So I don't know where you've been or what contracts you've made with God or what you're running from or what you think is going to be better or what you believe. Maybe you just don't trust. Maybe you don't treasure. I feel like God is, he's pleading with you today and saying, I, I'm telling you beyond the shadow of a doubt, beyond the shadow of a doubt, I am better. You get to sit at the table with the king, the king of kings. And he's your dad because of what Jesus has done for you. You've been engrafted in. You've been adopted into his family. And maybe, maybe you haven't been. Maybe you haven't surrendered to Jesus. Maybe you're, this is new for you. And the beautiful thing is he's inviting you today to give your life to Jesus. And it has nothing to do with obedience because he's paid it all. He's poured out. He knew. The covenant-keeping God knew that we couldn't keep the covenant. So he poured out his blood for you today. It's what he does. It's who he is. Let's stand. I'm going to speak this quote over you. It's been C.S. Lewis. It's always powerful. And it reminds me that the things I think are going to save me and rescue me are always going to be small, insignificant, fragile, flimsy, and they won't rescue me. But God is calling me to something more glorious and more enjoyable. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum, because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased.